So we're continuing our series, Scars, and over the last few weeks we've been talking about this idea of scars and how each of us have some. So whether you've done something crazy and you've ridden your little Dukes of Hazard cartwheel thing and you put the little, little ramp and you ramped up over it and you fell over and scraped your elbow, your knee, and then two, week, two days later you woke up from your concussion. I mean, you got those things, right? So you did crazy things as kids and you got these scars and you're telling people, hey, I got this, this, and this. And, and we realize that we're going to have scars either from crazy things we've done or surgeries or whatever. And behind each scar is a story. And we like to tell those stories. Sometimes we're embarrassed of the stories because of the dumb things we've done. But each one has a story. But we also understand that the longer that we live life, that there are going to be scars not only on the outside, but scars on the inside. And the scars on the inside many times are the, the ones that hurt the most. We hide and we, we don't tell people about because they're the ones that hurt the most and they're the deepest hurts. And uh, maybe even take longer um, and more difficult to heal. And so we've been talking about those over the last few weeks of fear and anxiety and depression and addictions and several different things like that. We also come to know that sometimes the scars of life are just us fleshing out what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the culture that we live in. And that this has been a historical thing that since Jesus has come. What does it mean for us to be a follower of Jesus in the culture of the day? Because we understand that if we truly are fleshing out what it means to be a follower of Jesus, if we're a student or a disciple and and following him, then we are, in many ways, we're living life exactly opposite of the rest of culture, so that we are swimming upstream. And so one of the things that we struggle with as humans is we want to be liked. We want people to look at us and say, hey, they're cool, they're whatever. And we work really hard at an image that we want to present to people. And sometimes that image is actually opposite of what the image should be in following Jesus Christ. And so there's this tension that we live in was what does it mean to be a student and a follower of Jesus and to live in the culture? Because as scripture even tells us in the New Testament, there are going to be times when we're living out our faith and people are going to look at us as Christians and call us fools. And none of us want to be called fools. But what Jesus says is there's no better thing to be called than a fool for Jesus. To literally be a fool for him because we are living life against culture. And so how do we live in this context of the culture that we live in and being a follower of Jesus and, and to move forward in our life and, and, and to struggle with that? And so in the midst of that struggle, that there are times where there are scars that happen because of that. So this morning, as we close out this series on scars, I want us to kind of to dig into this idea and to think about it a little bit. So as you see in your notes, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 32. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 7 and in Matthew chapter 4. I know it's a lot to cover, so listen fast, okay? So in Genesis chapter 32, we see one of the first ones is Jacob. Jacob was his, really, he was the artful deceiver. And so his very beginning of his life, he was the favorite child of his mama, and his mama would do anything she could possibly do to give Jacob what he wanted. Now, none of us would do that, right? None of us have a kid that we would just do whatever we can possibly do. I think about the recent college entrance scam that parents would do anything they could possibly do so their children could have the best. And so think about that. So think about that's Jacob's mom. She's going to do whatever she can do so that her favored child can have the best, whatever she thinks is the best. And so she literally deceives her own husband. She puts a sheep's wool on her son, 
Jacob because apparently Esau, the other brother that they're trying to steal the birthright from, is a really hairy dude. And so she puts a sheep's wool on there, and the father who's blind and can't see and all that stuff feels it and says, Ah, oh, you're, my, you're my son, you're the son, and I passes on the birthright. And so in the midst of all of that, that's the Reader's Digest version, in the midst of all that, Jacob and his mother steal the birthright from Esau. And this is the heart of Jacob, as he wants what he wants, when he wants it, and he will draw others into it with him so that he can get what he wants. So he's deceptive. And so because of that deception and because of getting that birthright, he has to leave town because Esau comes back and is not happy about losing his birthright. He's lost the mansion. He's lost everything. And so now he's extremely upset. And so Jacob runs away, and in the process of running away, he finds a family member named Laban, and Laban takes him in, and he gets two wives and has to work for 14 years and all this different stuff. Read it before Genesis 32. And so then we get to this place of where, again, the artful deceiver, Jacob, deceives his father-in-law. And all throughout the process of the 20 years of living with his father-in-law, he consistently deceives him. And he's growing. Even though Laban is becoming rich, Jacob himself is becoming even richer. And one of the things that he even does is he puts some stuff in the water trough so when the, the sheep come and the, all the different animals come and they drink from that oxen and from that uh, water trough, that instead of being either solid white or solid black, somehow or another it changes the coloring of their wool. And so any animal that's not solid black or solid white or solid brown that goes to those solid colors go to Laban. The spotted animals go with Jacob. Well, magically, because of what Jacob's doing, there's more spotted animals than solid ones. And so Jacob's gaining this enormous amount of wealth. And finally, he goes to his father-in-law Laban and says, look, I want out. I want to go back to my homeland. I want to be with my family. And Laban says, no, I've got a really good deal working here. I know you're getting rich, but I'm getting rich too. And so let's continue to both get rich together. Well, in the middle of all night, one night, the artful deceiver says, I've had enough. So Laban is off for a little bit, and so Jacob and his wives takes up all the livestock and everything, and they begin to move away. As they begin to move away, Laban realizes he's been tricked. and So they come together, and they discuss all of it, and they make a covenant together that they'll live in two separate lands. And so now here's Jacob on this final leg of his journey back to his homeland, but it's been 20 years. And you can imagine a brother that's been spurned and lost all of his wealth and lost all of his inheritance is sitting there. He's not happy to be hearing that his younger brother who stole everything from him is coming back and is also wealthier than when he left. So here is Jacob. He's a little bit distressed, a little bit worried, some fear, anxiety, all those things are raising up. So he sends ahead some gifts because he still has a heart of deception. And so what he does is he sets up gifts to send to his brother Esau, and one by one those gifts go ahead of him. And every time that that person is leading that gift, they say, hey, we're with your brother Jacob. He's here to present these gifts to you. We are your servants. We are here. You are the master. We are the ones that are going to be serving you. And so several gifts go ahead. Again, trying to deceive Esau and kind of shorten up the, the anger and all the things that are going on. And so then here comes that point where he sets his, his sister or his wife's ahead, not his sisters, but his wife's ahead because the anxiety begins to rise up with inside of him. Why? Because of all of this deception. All of these things that he's been pursuing for himself is coming to a head. He knows that he's going to have to deal with it. And so in his great distress, in Genesis 32, verse 9, what does he do? He stops 
and he prays. Not about you, but I'm, I'm a lot like Jacob in that I want to find any other solution. I'm looking to solve my problems and my, my things that I've created in my life. I know that sometimes I've created them, and so I'm looking for solutions. And the last thing that I do is stop and pray. But that's what the Father, that's what a good Father does, is allows us to do. One of the things that I enjoy most is my children coming to me and saying, Hey, Dad, what do you think about this? And they're coming to me, one, because they trust me, because they need advice, they need counsel, and they stop in the midst of and they say, Hey, I trust your counsel and your wisdom. And they come and they ask and we sit down and we talk about it, we think about it, all the different options. And here, Jacob stops and he spends time with the Father. And he says, Father, I know I've messed up. Look at all the mistakes I've made. Look at all the mess I've made of my life. Please give me some wisdom and some counsel. And so in the midst of that, we see Jacob begin to wrestle with God. Now, I think that's what prayer really is, is that we come to the end of ourselves so many times that we just have to stop. We realize we can't do it on our own. We don't have solutions. We don't have the answers. And we've met a mess of our life. And so many times we just come to the end of ourselves and we stop and we begin to wrestle with God. And so whenever I see this passage and I think about the wrestling with God, I think of the little kid that's grabbed onto his parent's leg, to his father's leg, and he's just kind of shaking it. You ever seen that where the, they've got the kid there and they're just kind of a play fighting and the kid's like, I'm not going to let go of you, dad. And, and they're walking around and they're doing all this and they're, they're giggling and they're laughing and that this is the image for me of Jacob and his wrestling with God is that because obviously if it's God, he can overwhelm him at any point that he wants to. The strength of a father can easily take a child and and remove them from their leg and set them aside. But there's something about the relationship and the banter that happens between a father and a son or a grandfather while they're they're doing this whole shaking of the leg thing. And and, and so this, this is going on. And the beauty, I think, of those wrestling moments in prayer with God is that all of the different solutions we're saying, God, I'm at the end of myself. I found all the the only thing that will solve this is you. And I'm not going to let go of you. And so continue to hold on in this, this shaking. And finally, after a long struggle overnight, Jacob says, all I want is to be touched. I want to experience you. And so this angel, this God, touches Jacob, dislocates his hip. And as we know, for the rest of his life, he walks with a limp. The same is true for us is that there comes times in our life where we struggle with God, that we align ourselves with him, and that the beauty of prayer is is that as we're struggling with God, what's happening is is that we're sloughing off the things of ourself, and we're realizing that, hey, I don't have all the wisdom. Hey, I don't have all the power. I don't have all the authority. I don't have all the right answers. And so the things that I want, the, the artful deceiver the one who's been able to manipulate the situation to get whatever he wants, to manipulate his mom, to manipulate his father-in-law, even to manipulate his wives, to manipulate everything to get what he wants, is finally at the end of himself. And so that in his struggle with prayer is, is that in this moment, he's aligning his wishes, his desires with God's. So that there's this transaction that happens in prayer is that as we spend time alone with God and as we struggle with him, that the struggle of prayer is, God, I don't want what I want. I want my heart to want what you want. 
because I know that you want only the best for me. I know that you have the greatest wisdom. I know that you have the greatest truths. I know that you have the greatest and the best for me. And that's the struggle that happens in prayer. And so that those moments that we're holding on for anything else that we want to be touched by God in such a way. And in that encounter, we walk away with it for, with a limp and that people can say, why do you walk with a limp? And we can immediately go back to that moment and say, listen, God and I had a conversation, and that conversation changed my life forever. It was a conversion, a transformation that happened, and no one would know about what happened if it wasn't because of the lamp. And most of us, a lot of us in this room, we walk with lamps, we have scars, and we're able to tell the story of God and I had an encounter together. And listen, I wanted my way. Because I want what I want when I want it, but God wouldn't let go. And I knew that I tried my way so many different ways that I wasn't going to let go of God in this moment. Where initially it had been the other way around where God wouldn't let go of me. Now I am holding on for everything I've got because I'm at the end of myself and I need him. So the scars of walking with a lamp are able to tell the story, the struggles of God's heart moving us to align with his heart. The second piece is the greatest Christian, I think, that has probably ever lived, that most of us would say that has ever lived, is the person of Paul. So now if Paul is understood the Old Testament was probably the strongest and one of the greatest students of the Old Testament that had ever been, and also the writer of most of the New Testament and started a lot of the New Testament's first churches and was very influential in the beginnings of the church. I mean, if there's anyone who understands what it means to be a follower of Jesus and go against the flow and against the culture and be against the stream and to, and to live a victorious Christian life, it's Paul, right? And so it should, should amaze us that he would struggle with the same tension that we struggle with and that what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus and to live in culture? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus and that there's times that I want something that I want that may or may not be what God wants for me? So in Romans chapter 7, look with me in there. In Romans chapter 7, in Paul's internal struggle with doing what's right and the struggle that so many times that he doesn't do what's right. Tito, if you'll throw those verses up. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human. So here's Paul, probably the greatest believer ever, most well-known, as he admits... I'm an imperfect person. I'm human. I'm a slave to sin. In other words, it owns me. It masters me. When I don't want it to master me, it masters me. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Anybody ever had that experience? You want to do what is right, but you don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. Maybe you've been to that place. You wanted to do what's right, and you thought you were going to do what's right, and then boom, you messed up, and so then you begin to feel guilt. You begin to feel this separation. You begin to feel like, well, God wouldn't love me because I keep doing this thing over and over, and I said I wasn't going to do it, and darn it if I don't do it again. And that struggle that we, that we have. The next verse. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. So if you're a parent, you've, kids maybe have said this. I didn't want to do it. It just happened, right? Next verse. But 
If I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing wrong. So kids, this is your excuse. It's not really me. It's the sin living in me. And so the parent says, I'm still going to put you in time out. And the sin living in you will go with you. It's the sin living in me that does it. So here's the tension. Is that even though you've said yes to Jesus, and because you've said yes to Jesus, the Holy Spirit takes residence with inside of you, that literally there is this war raging with inside of you, the, the war of kingdoms, and which kingdom, which flag of allegiance is going to be raised. And so there's that, that tension that's, that's going back and forth. Now, here's the beautiful thing, that once you've said yes to Jesus, now you actually have the ability to pursue doing right. As a matter of fact, in Galatians chapter 5, it tells us that before we knew Jesus, we couldn't even pursue the things of God. We couldn't do the right things. And so here's the image. So now that you've said yes to Jesus, because of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit desires to bring honor and fame to Jesus. The Holy Spirit desires for us to be obedient. And because of that, in Galatians 5, we now have the ability to get into the habit of saying yes to Jesus. And so as we begin to hear from the Holy Spirit, as he begins to teach us and we begin to to listen to his voice and distinguish his voice over all the other voices that the deceiver gives to us and presents to us, we're able to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit and distinguish it. We can continue to say yes. And then we get a little, we know the voice a little bit better and we continue and we can begin on this journey. But before we knew Jesus, we couldn't even go this direction because The God, the flag of allegiance that was raised was my flag and and allegiance to me only. So I'm consistently in this direction. This is why the scripture has this word repent, which means to turn around and to go in this other direction. Because this is the tension that we live in, is that I want to raise the flag of allegiance to myself. And when I do that, I'm moving in this direction. But then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit within me raises up and says, psst. There's a pothole. Look at the flags. Look at the warnings. And the Lord puts the stop sign up and says, you're a child of God. Repent. Turn around and go in the different direction. And so we begin to move here because the Spirit draws us and wants us to have fellowship and experience the fellowship of what it means to live with Jesus. So here's what Paul says. It's the sin living in me that does the wrong things. And so he says, I've discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what it is right, inevitably, I do what is wrong. That's the tension that we live in. If the greatest, strongest, most well-known, most well-studied follower of Jesus struggles with this, surely us just regular imperfect people are going to struggle with this. So quit beating yourself up and realize this is life. This is the tension that we live in, that we're constantly hearing from the Holy Spirit. Look, I know you can go that direction, and there might even be some good things over there, but the best things are this direction. And as some of the great musical theologians have said before us, walk this way. Move this direction. Because when you walk this way, right, 
you're going to look weird. And people are going to say, oh, he's a Christian. And you're going to say, yeah, but I know what's over there. And I don't want nothing to do with that. I want to walk in this direction. And I know that you're going to call me a fool, but I would rather be a fool for Christ than eating out of the junk stuff over there. Because I've gotten enough stuff and scars and stank and stuff from over there. I want to walk in this way. So if Paul struggles with it, so will we. Now in Matthew chapter 4, we see Jesus beginning his ministry. And he's led out into the wilderness. And this word wilderness literally means the place of devastation. So that Jesus begins his ministry being led out into the wilderness, literally led out into the place of devastation. And so, I mean, if we watch the news, if we get up and we go to work, we do the things we do, sometimes it feels like we bring led out into the wilderness, into the place of devastation. Am I right? Because there's carnage all around us. There's brokenness all around us. And so we're called into the wilderness. And the reason that we're called into the wilderness is Jesus, the same as Jesus, he was tempted, but even maybe a better word is tested. And then because testing and temptation, it's not meant to make us sin. It's made to, and we're put in those opportunities so that we can lean into Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can learn how to conquer sin. See, Jesus doesn't lead us into temptation. He leads us away from and he leads us to, to lean into him so that we can conquer things, so that we can grow in our relationship with him. So that very thing, tempting and testing, is not to make us sin, but enable us to to overcome so that we can be victorious in sin, to to make us good and holy, not bad, not to struggle with guilt, but to strengthen us, not to weaken us. So here we are, Jesus is in the the wilderness, the place of devastation, and the the devil shows up and talks to him. Here's what he says. Let's look at verse 2. For 40 days and 40 nights... He fasted, and he became very hungry. Very true. And so here's the first test. Here's the first temptation. During that time, the devil, the great deceiver, came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, which, so he's again questioning him, and one of the things that the deceiver does is he takes Scripture and he takes truths and he kind of twists them just a little bit. And so it's important for us as children to know the words of the Father. Because if we don't know the words of the Father, then someone can kind of can trick us a little bit. And so here, the, de- the deceiver is, is putting a little play on words. If you are, when it should be, you are the Son of God. But if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. So here's an opportunity. Like, like Jesus deserves food. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, 40 days and 40 nights... He hasn't eaten, so here he is at the end of that, and if he deserves food at any time, it's now. And so the deceiver comes and says, hey, here's what you rightfully deserve right now. And Jesus looks at all of these stones on the mountainside and could easily, because he has the authority and ability, make these things into bread. Now, here's the thing for us, is that there are times that there are things that we rightfully have the ability to do, and that it's the time, we think it's the time, but it's not. And so here Jesus decided and knew that he could not turn those stones into bread because even though he had the right to do it, it wasn't the right time or the right place for that to happen. Physical things that we are going to have natural desires in life 
that are before us that we could rightfully take a part of. We, we think we deserve them, and they're natural things, but it's not the right time or the right place to partake of them. And so, therefore, it's outside of God's best for us. And so here, Jesus responds, No, the Scriptures say people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So God creates in us a, a natural desire for intimacy. But any time that we go outside of the, the right time and the right place, then that is what is ne- necessarily good and actually necessarily great is distorted. And so there's things in life that, that are naturally good for us that whenever we pursue them in the wrong time, in the wrong place, they're the wrong thing. And so that's, again, the tension that we live in is the discernment of, God, you have provided natural desires. You've provided things for me. What is best? When is the right time and the right place for me to partake of these things? The second thing, look in verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple. So this is the, it would have been the highest building. So he's at the highest place of the highest building, and he's looking over basically all of Jerusalem. So he sees the, the, the city and all of its glory there before him. And the great deceiver says, if you are the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say, for see, the deceiver knows the same scriptures we know. And so there's even going to be false teachers and preachers and evangelists and prophets that are going to use this and are going to distort it just a little bit, that it has bits and pieces of truth, but it's going to lead us off in a direction one, two, three degrees off course, and we're going to do some things that aren't the best for us and that aren't even God-honoring, because here's what we do is that in our humanity, we take something that has authority and we begin to change it and manipulate it so that it's to our benefit. Because I can take the scripture right here and I can tell you, I need and you should be about giving me great amount of money because that will be a blessing to you. Because I need a jet. Right? I need this car or I need this house. Right? And so there's all these different things that I could do and say that could manipulate this. And if we don't go to the Father and know his words, we are easily deceived by those things. The deceiver is great at this, and he's so good at it. Think about this. He's so good at it that he had the gall to do this to the Son of God. So if he thinks it's powerful enough to maneuver and to manipulate the Son of God, for surely he's going to use it on us because we are not that smart and we don't know the word that well. And so here he is. He will order his angels to protect you, which is true. And they will hold you up in in their hands and so you won't even hurt a, a foot on your stone. All these things are true. And then here's what Jesus says. You must not test the Lord your God. Why? Because this was an offer of convenience. Because God, he's saying, hey, you, you can have this. You look down, you could be the high priest. And Jesus knew that he was the high priest. He is the high priest and he was going to fulfill that. But here's a quick way for people to pay attention to you. So for us to know God's word and to know it in context, not just in that, but the whole context allows us to not rationalize 
away our sin, to not rationalize away the things that we want, and to truly understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus and to, and to live a life of fullness of what he has for us. There's so many times we take scriptures out of context and quote them. And, and maybe the principle's right, maybe it's not. And we hold on and we're clinging to things. They're not things that God actually said to us to rationalize those things. And then the third thing, verse 8. Next, the devil took him up to the very peak of a high mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms. So you see he showed him the city, but now he's showing him all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And I will give it to you if you will kneel down and worship me. So again, Jesus knew that part of his journey was the suffering of the cross and the drinking of the cup of wrath and the convenient way would have been in that moment to say, okay, give me these kingdoms temporarily because I don't want to have to go through what I know that I'm going to have to go to the experience what God has for me. And we, we do the same. We know that the road that God has for us, and we know that because if we do this or don't do this, God's going to call us a fool or people are going to make fun of us, and, and we can quickly grab something, and it will be filling for us. I mean, that's the reason we get a new iPhone 10. That's the reason we get a new car, a new truck sometimes is because we know that in that moment that that's our kingdom and that we, we can have that and it feels good for that moment. But what does it feel like for us to wait patiently and to maybe not have, maybe have that beat up minivan that's barely hold together with duct tape and, and a house that's smaller than everyone else's house and you, you kind of give up some things because you're, you're not about this anymore, but you're about this. Not this church, but about the kingdom of God. And so people call you fools because they're like, man, you make, you make more than enough money. Why do you drive that, that beat up old little Ford Pinto? And you're like, because it gets me to work. Which pays my bills, which allows me to, to do X. You know what I mean? And, and so we're living world life upside down. And, and not to say that those things aren't good and that you, all that, but, but it's this whole thing of what, what are, where are our kingdoms and our hearts aligning? Are we, we pursuing the fleeting over the eternal? What are we pursuing? The different scars that we get along the way. Listen, and all the scars that we're going to have, each one of them have a story, whether they're out here or in here. And even in 1 Corinthians, Paul says to us, God does not waste your pains and your joys. But when he says that, he doesn't just say that to us individually. He does say it to us, but he says you, and he says it in the plural, which means he's saying it not just to individuals, but he's saying it to the individuals within community. And that the reason that we have scars on the outside and scars on the inside is because within community, they serve a purpose. They have a meaning. And that purpose and that meaning for us and the scars that we struggle with and the things that maybe we have even put ourselves through is that we can, in community, say, hey, look, here's the scar yeah, it was a dumb Dukes of Hazard thing. I was chasing after Daisy and her cutoffs. I mean, it was it was it was an awesome. And or, or maybe over here of like, hey, listen, I was doing this and I jumped off a three story building and I broke broke my elbow in three places. And you know, all the different things that we do that we just think are cool in the moment, and then we look back and now that we're 25 or 30 and we're starting to hurt and ache, we're like, that wasn't such a good idea. But you can tell the stories. But you can only tell those stories in community. And so the very reason 
But I want you to grasp this as all of those things that we've been talking about over these last few weeks. That God has given you a story or multiple levels to your story. And the best way to live that out and to share that and to grow in it and to share it with others is in community. That when you're in your life group, when you're hanging out with other believers, saying, look, here's who I am. Here's this scar and this scar and this scar. And through that, we grow, we're transformed, and we're changed as individuals but also as a community. We look different because of through all of these scars, the very purpose is just to show that we love and we are loved by God like no one else. And because of the God, way that God loves us, we can love other people. So your scars are scars of love and scars of community. May we this week share some of your stories. Because this week is a week, maybe more than any other week, people are attuned to the story of Jesus Christ. And you have an opportunity to say, listen, there was a day where I was hanging on with all I've got, and God, I felt like God was shaking me off, but I held on, and in that moment, I was transformed. I don't have it. I'm like Paul. I still struggle with it. There are days that I'm in the wilderness in the place of devastation, but I know that God's not leading me to a place that I can't be victorious because I know that he's there with me. But I have this scar, and here's my story. Let's share our story because he has scars. And his scars are part of our story. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your scars. I give life. Thank you for our scars. That all they they hurt, there's also a place of healing and restoration and redemption. But they can also be the stories that lead, the scars that lead other people, the stories of redemption in their own life. Father, may we share our scars and our stories of how you've transformed us and moved us. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.